0: Okay, so now we come to the end of the book of Zechariah. It uh it's been been a little bit since I posted the last podcast on chapter 13. Uh it's because I wanted to make sure and and take a little extra time to to study on chapter 14. This chapter is uh it's perhaps one of the most difficult chapters in uh, in the entire Bible uh as we start working working through the chapter uh we're gonna be wading off into some of the most dense uh, apocalyptic literature in the in the bible so um If you go looking around at what other scholars and interpreters and teachers say about this chapter, you're going to find all kinds of different interpretations about what Zechariah is trying to tell us. Uh, You're going to find uh, different uh, avenues by which people are looking at what Zechariah is saying and saying this is why it's here in the Bible, this is what its purpose is. So let me just give you just a little bit on that, and then we'll we'll look at Zechariah. Uh, If this goes long, I may break it up into two. Uh, two segments, but there are, there are three basic views on how this chapter should be interpreted and and what God's intending to teach His people. Uh, the first is is to say that the pictures uh, of mountains ripping apart and the and the disappearance of the sun and the moon uh, are simply figurative descriptions of the events that that take place throughout uh, the entire Church Age. They're uh, just word pictures and vivid images that Zechariah is using to display what Christ um and his church will continually be going through and doing uh, throughout the age uh, of grace and and the uh, coming of the holy spirit uh uh it's what we're it's uh, the indicative of our experience that we're having at right now in the in the age of the church now needless to say I, I find quite a few problems with this view uh, of course you know as as we read any apocalyptic literature we're going to see some figurative language that's a that's a fact uh, and you're going to see loads of symbolism, you know, things pointing to other things. But if you've been listening to our discussions, Zechariah, uh, all the chapters up to this point, you'll notice that even when there is figurative language and there has been much already, uh, we can always see literal realities that the the symbols are pointing to. Uh, we saw this in Alexander's conquest, fulfilling God's judgment, chapter 9. Uh, we saw it in the death of Jesus, fulfilling the striking of the shepherd imagery in chapter 13 these are uh these are symbolic images these are vivid figurative pictures but they do point to literal events and so i, I don't i don't see any need or, or any warrant to to suddenly change the way we interpret Zechariah in chapter 14 you know from the consistent pattern that we've seen throughout the book so I find some problems with that first view. The second view is one that's held by what's called premillennial dispensationalists. I know it's a mouthful, but this view says that Zechariah is giving us a historical account of the literal events culminating the end of the world. So we're getting a glimpse at the end of history and there will be a literal physical attack on Jerusalem, the city itself. Uh, which will be defeated by jesus returning over jerusalem in his second coming Uh, and if you've been listening to all the previous chapters that we've done here and you're following in the context of zechariah you probably know that this view has has major difficulties as well i mean on the one hand you can't help but honor the desire to take the bible in a literal realistic sense as it should be taken but Immediately, you run into huge problems. I mean, greatest of these problems, in my mind anyway, is that uh, in this view, when Jesus returns and destroys all his enemies and sets up his kingdom in a newly built temple, what he's there to do is reestablish the law of Moses. I mean... That goes against everything that the New Testament says. And in the end of this chapter, it talks about people that are coming to Jerusalem to sacrifice again, you know, once once all this is over and keep the Feast of Tabernacles. I mean, is that is that really the the way the New Testament authors viewed the prophecies of Zechariah, that Jesus was going to return, destroy all his enemies, set up his millennial kingdom and then reestablish the temple and the temple sacrifices and the feasts? Uh, I wonder what Paul would have thought about... That view. I mean, seeing that he came unglued when the Judaizers added a single command to the salvation of Christ in Galatians. Uh, The writer of Hebrews tells us repeatedly, Jesus fulfilled the temple sacrifices, rendered them useless. Uh, He would have never agreed with the idea that the law of Moses would be reinstituted after Christ's second coming. And then you have the literal uh, problems. You know, how is uh, an army on horseback going to come against the city? You know, things like that. But there is a third view that kind of melds these two together i think it's the correct view a lot of people disagree with me and if you're one of those you know it's it's this is not a reason to break fellowship over not in my mind anyway um, the third view is that Zechariah chapter fourteen gives us descriptions of the consummation of all things. You know, we are talking about the end of history. We are talking about the final, uh, the final moments before and after the second coming of Christ. But he gives it to us in language that is rooted in the symbolic, the symbols of the Old Testament. Uh, these are indeed descriptions of the end of this life and in the, in the coming of the eternal state you know whether it be uh for eternal eternal life or eternal damnation but the the way he gives it to us he he's not giving us a play-by-play account of what's happening in the way that a newspaper reporter would convey a story uh, instead Zechariah is giving he's giving general descriptions uh that are rooted in old testament literature uh, they tell us real literal truth i mean it is figurative language, but it is pointing to real literal events. I mean, real things that are going to happen. Zachariah will ten times uh, begin each picture by saying on that day. And so... He's going to begin each picture with "on that day," and he'll present the the truths of the final blessings and judgment that that will come upon the world. So, uh, what I think is that as we look at this text, we're going to be looking at symbolic language, but the language is pointing to realities uh, that uh, that we will and do experience in uh, in the the time before, during, and after the second coming uh, of Christ. Christ. And so let's just start reading and we'll see how far we get, uh, It says, verse one says, behold, the day of the Lord cometh and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee, for I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle and the city will be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished, and half of the city shall go forth into captivity and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. He's saying, I'm going to come. I'm going to bring all these nations against the city, uh, but I'm going to keep a residue or a remnant. Uh, of Of my people, since we left off uh, chapter thirteen, talking about the crucifixion and the resurrection. Uh, there can't be any doubt that Chapter fourteen is presenting the uh, the second coming uh, of christ it's it's uh, it 's what comes next uh, but before that grand event, God himself is going to bring the nations against his people. Now we have already delved deeply in, in this podcast through the biblical truth that god 's true Israel has always been a remnant of believers within uh, the community and and we've seen that the Jewish apostles in in the New Testament unanimously proclaimed that uh, that they were the fulfillment of that remnant and those that come through Christ uh, to be the true people of God, the remnant of which all the prophets spoke. Uh, they taught that the Jewish people needed to believe in Christ. Who is himself the true Israel? Uh, We have also seen that the early church in Acts was entirely Jewish, and Luke tells us that, you know, as Peter and John and the other apostles were going into the temple complex every day preaching and healing, people from the surrounding towns streamed into Jerusalem to worship God in spirit and truth uh, through Jesus. And so, as Zechariah speaks here of Judah and Jerusalem he is speaking of the perfect Jerusalem he's speaking of God's uh, true Jerusalem of course he probably doesn't realize that the perfect Jerusalem would come through the death and resurrection of uh, this Messiah Jesus but he foresees a time when Jerusalem would be everything God has always meant for her to be and God would pour out his righteousness upon her so he's using the language of his day he's using the the figures and the images of his day. And he's saying there's going to be a time when when Jerusalem, God's Jerusalem, which is in righteousness, will have the nations brought against her. And of course, we know that God's Jerusalem is, according to Hebrews uh, chapter 13, and according to Galatians chapter 3 and chapter 4, we know that the true Jerusalem is of above. And we have come to that Jerusalem, Mount Zion, uh, as the writer of Hebrews says, through Jesus. But here, he says that he will bring the nations against this Jerusalem. So throughout the Bible, God says that he will mold and make his people. More often than not, he's going to do this through trial and persecution. Uh, even in Acts, as we were talking earlier, we see that it wasn't until Stephen was stoned to death that the church actually spread out beyond the walls of Jerusalem. Uh, God used the death of Stephen to bring Gentiles into his church, bring Samaritans first, and then Gentiles into his church. Uh, what we see here is is what we've always seen throughout the time of Christ. The people of God suffer immense persecution and attack. But, but Zechariah here... He speaks of a heightened attack that will come at the end of time as the Lord himself returns. We uh, will always be persecuted, but uh, before the end, this persecution will become severe so that the whole world uh, will set itself up against God's people. Just before the eternal state culminates, uh, um, a greater degree of hatred, I guess, and violence against the church Will characterize the world. Uh, the question that immediately rises here is: Are we ready for that? Are you ready to suffer persecution for that? Uh, lots of people point to how bad the world's getting, and it certainly is. Uh, and we were pointing to how secular everything is moving at present. But I mean, let's let's be really honest. Most of us, especially here in America, we have it pretty dang good uh, as of today. Anyway, no one is hunting us down and looking to kill us here in America. Now, there are other places. in in the world where that is happening to believers. Uh, and so Zechariah is showing us that, that toward toward the very end, there will be a great attack upon God's people. That is, it, it, it's allowed by God himself. I mean, think about that a minute. He says, I will bring the nations against my Jerusalem. Uh, but this is not where God will leave it. We know that weeping you know, may endure for a night, but joy is going to come in the morning. This is where we see the coming of Jesus himself. As he returns to earth in power and glory. Verse 3 says, Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. As Jesus comes again, he he won't... Uh, he won't come to be a meek and mild carpenter. He will come, as it were, riding a white horse, which is a picture meaning that he will come as a conqueror uh, to tread down those who have persecuted him by persecuting his people. Now, think about that. We we're talking about people coming against God's people. But remember uh, remember that it was, it was Saul of Tarsus. That's what he was doing. He was persecuting the church. Uh, but when Jesus knocked him off his donkey, Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me, he didn't say why are you persecuting my people. He said why are you persecuting me? Uh, this, uh, you know, uh, it's not a new idea for the student of the Old Testament. Many times in in, in the history of Israel, the Lord Himself fought to protect uh, His people against His enemies. I mean. It doesn't take much thought for our minds to go back to Joshua as the Lord brought down the walls of the city of Jericho or or Gideon for whom God defeated an army of Midianites with just 300 men. Uh, We also remember uh, Sennacherib was the ruler of Assyria and after he destroyed the northern kingdom, he he came with his Assyrian army against Jerusalem itself to destroy the city and overnight an angel killed 185,000 of his men. Uh, And it saved the city. He turned around and went home. Saved the city and he saved his people. And, uh, you know, of course, you can't forget God destroying the armies of Pharaoh in the Red Sea and letting his people cross safely on dry ground. So what we see here is God coming to defeat the nations that come against his people, just as he has done repeatedly in the past. But he is coming this time once and for all to bring judgment on those who oppose him and blessing on those who who belong to him so let's look first at uh, four and five we're going to see um the blessing that he's going to give, he's going to give his people, uh, as it were, a way of escape. Now, listen carefully to the to the imagery that is is shown to us here in verse 4 and 5. It says, and his feet shall stand, talking about the Lord who's coming, his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a... a a very great valley, and half the mountains shall remove toward the north, half toward the south, and you shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal, yea, you shall flee like as you fled but from before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, King of Judah. So what he says here, and then finally it says, And the Lord my God shall come, and all the saints with thee. Um What he's showing us here is Jesus is said to here to come down upon the Mount of Olives. Now, here is where we're going to have to make a decision about the nature of of what's being said. Now, I believe that Jesus uh, indeed will return in the same manner that he left, just as Acts 111 says, uh, which very well and very possibly and, and I think probably Uh, Could mean that he will return in the same place where he was taken up, which is the Mount of Olives. Um, But what do we do with this picture of the mountain splitting in two in order to allow the the people a valley uh, through which to escape? Now, think about all the nations of the world are coming against the city in Zechariah's day the the city was, you know, the walled city and they would be surrounded God would come down through the Mount of Olives, make a valley so to speak, through the mountain so that the people would have a way of escape uh, from all that was going on in the same way that Uzziah um, uh, did when he uh, when uh, the nations came against him, so uh once again, uh, the idea of God coming in, in judgment so that the mountain melts and the valleys are split open. Um, it, it's, a, it's a strange picture for our modern minds, but it's very common in the Old Testament. Very common picture, very common uh, way of speaking about God's uh, blessing and judgment in the Old Testament. It's a picture of, of God coming in power and judgment and we see this in psalm ninety seven read psalm ninety seven five read isaiah sixty four um, uh now now to be fair though these pictures could very well speak of the same event Zechariah is speaking of here. You know, in Psalm 97 and Isaiah 64, it could be the same event that Zechariah is speaking of where the mountains are laid low and the valley splits. But we also see this picture in Micah chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, where it talks about mountains being laid low and the stars and and all this apocalyptic imagery, which in Micah is a prophecy against Judah and Samaria. Micah says, let me just read it to you, Micah 1, verse 3, 4, and I'll read 5. It says, for behold the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth and the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire like waters poured down a steep place all this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel what is the transgression of Jacob is it not Samaria and what is the high place of Judah is it not Jerusalem so you see this is a picture in Micah of judgment that is not the end of the world judgment it is judgment that is coming against judah and jerusalem but it uses the same picture of the mountains melting and the valleys splitting open it it's using the same imagery to uh convey that judgment is coming perfect judgment is coming uh and blessing is coming for uh, the righteous and judgment's coming for the unrighteous so Zechariah is not uh Let's put it this way. Zechariah is giving us uh, um, a, a picture, uh, an image of definitely what will come to pass, but he is not doing it in the way that we would read a historical story today or a newspaper article describing an event that has happened he is doing it in the same way that all the old testament prophets have done it they have described it with vivid imagery with apocalyptic imagery about the end of the world uh, when when god came against egypt i think it's isaiah 19 i may be wrong about that but he he talks about god uh, was going to come on the clouds to egypt and melt his idols and melt their hearts and and things like that and, and god did come in judgment against israel i mean egypt uh when in, in isaiah 19 that prophecy was fulfilled uh but of course all these pictures were were used to describe that and so i think that is what we're talking about here this is the lord coming in judgment of his people so uh in judgment of those who have come against his people so uh um He's using this imagery. Zechariah shows us that the Lord's coming in Zechariah 14 is for the judgment of the nations and to provide a way of escape for his people. The uh, One more, the apocalyptic language that I'm talking about, it's also used in Nahum 1.5, where God is pronouncing judgment on the city of Nineveh. Uh, he says uh, in Nahum 1:5 he says the mountains quake before him the hills melt the earth heaves before him the world and all who dwell in it and he's talking about the the judgment that will befall the city of Nineveh and we know that indeed it did uh and so uh it was it, it fell you know uh, when of course uh Assyria fell uh but we see severely apocalyptic imagery all over the Old Testament to talk about the destruction of cities. Um, but th- the immediate image this brings to mind is uh, is the parting of, of the Red Sea. I'm talking about the mountains being split open. Uh if you know the old testament it just seems like here you've got it's just a picture of it's a picture of what israel went through as they were being chased by pharaoh's men by the egyptians they were caught there was no way they they could escape uh the the power of the world's army the egyptians at that time was coming upon them and god parted the sea so that they could escape through and then closed it behind them to destroy the egyptians uh God gave his people a way of escape from from those who sought to destroy them and they they themselves were destroyed. And here we see the same thing. The picture here is the mountain is split in order to provide a way of escape for the people who are cornered by the nations of the world. And we see that when a day when the day of the Lord comes and final destruction is imminent, he will draw near to his beloved people and he will supernaturally open a way for his people to flee uh, eastward toward him. They always flee to the east. If if you look through scripture, the Lord will always bring his people from the east towards him. Uh, you see this Isaiah 63, Ezekiel 43, 4, uh, even in Revelation 7, uh, chapter chapter 7, verse 2. Uh, but notice what the final cause, clause in this section says. It says that his holy ones will come with him. Uh, One doesn't need much study to recognize this from the New Testament. In the day of the Lord, the glorified Christ himself will descend uh, from heaven to the skies above uh, by his spirit and through the agency of his holy angels. He will swiftly draw near to his people. Uh, which is being described here in Zechariah as the beloved city, Jerusalem, uh, wherever they may be. And he will supernaturally open a way through the air for his saints to fly to him because he is their city of refuge. Uh, we can see this in Matthew chapter 13, 36 through 43. First uh, Thessalonians 4, 13 and following. Um, it says, then his holy ones will bring blessing upon his people and judgment upon his enemies, Uh, Having shown us the culmination of history in the second coming of Jesus Christ, uh, Zechariah then moves to giving us descriptions of the eternal state and the fate of this old creation. Uh, What we see in verse six is a complete reordering of of creation. Uh, Verses six through eight are going to show us. Old Testament imagery, once again, uh, to describe the new heavens and the new earth. And then we will see in verses 9 through 11, uh, it's going to be more Old Testament imagery to describe the new life that we have in the new Jerusalem. Uh, Verse 6 says, On that day there shall be no light, cold or frost, uh, for it will be a unique day, uh, which is known to the Lord, neither day or night, but it will come about that at evening time there will be light. Now, I think that I think that verse. I swapped it to the ESV just because it has the the no colder frost in there. Uh, I don't know why that. It's it's placed like that, but contextually, it's unlikely. More a more accurate translation of the uh, of the uh, the uh, the words is uh, is talking about the the lights. It says um, on that day there there will be you know there will be no need for day or night on that day there won't be uh, you know in, even in the evening there will be light what we're seeing here is a transformation of the physical heavens i mean the new testament tells us that, that this will occur at the restoration of all things when christ returns what uh, what we see here is that there'll be no more light no more natural light sun and moon stars pass away so a day as zechariah describes it is neither day or night but it will be eternal day because God himself will be the light. Uh, if you look back at the creation in Genesis, you you surely remember that God said, Let there be light before there were any sun, moon, stars. He himself was the light. Um, in Second Peter 3.10, it says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So at the return... The domain of darkness, so to speak, will be gone. Uh, There will be no more curse. And darkness itself will be done away with once and for all. Then in verse 8, we get a glimpse of a very familiar picture in the Old Testament, the river of God from... uh, from the, the very beginning, on on that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea, it shall continue in summer as in winter. Now, to uh, to illustrate this, I want to I want to quote something from uh, Dean Davis. It's a book that he wrote called The High King of Heaven he says interestingly the prophet sees them talking about the rivers uh, flowing the living waters flowing out of the new Jerusalem that is out of the church the eternal people of God he gives Revelation 21 2 as a reference he also this is still him speaking he also sees that the river will flow both east and west filling the seas on either side of the city both in summer and in winter year round uh, however Revelation 21, 1 tells us that there will be no seas in the world to come. Meanwhile, Zechariah 14, 6-7, along with several texts in Revelation, assure us that there will be no seasons. The meaning then, I'm still quoting Dean Davis, the meaning then is figurative and theological. In that day, the life of God will continually replenish the creation of God and will do so through the people of God. Even now, the saints enjoy a foretaste of this life, giving ministry, building one another up through the ongoing exercise of their spiritual gifts. However, to know exactly what this will look like in the world to come, they shall doubtless have to wait for that day itself. What he's saying here is that all this um, this living water flowing out from Jerusalem and uh, and flowing into the sea, uh, and there being no more seasons, and all this is speaking of the same thing that uh, the end of Revelation is speaking of, the same thing that we look toward, the same thing that the apostles look for, um, and it's it's talking about the uh, the the blessing of God's people, where you know even Jesus said, "Living water will flow out from from your belly," no doubt with this prophecy in mind, uh, and, and so. We see that what we're talking about here now is the eternal state. We're talking about what things will be when all things are consummated, when we, uh, when, when Christ returns and all sin is wiped away and, and all things, there'll be no more tears, no more pain and suffering. And so we're going to look at verse 9. Now Zechariah is going to turn our attention to the life of To be enjoyed in the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven that John saw. And once again, we see that it is informed by figures from the Old Testament. And it's interpreted by the New Testament fulfillments. We're going to see these same things again. Verse 9 says, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name, the only one. On that day, uh, Jesus' kingdom will be be consummated. It will be universal, absolute. The name of the Father, Son, the Spirit will be the only name to be worshipped because all other false gods are are swept away in judgment. When the text says that the Lord... Will be the only one. It means that the truth of his unique Godhood will be manifest to the creation, to the new creation, and there will be no more doubts as to the nature of God. Uh, no other gods will exist in the minds and hearts of men because the true God will be present among them, and all sin will be wiped away. Verse 10 says, And the land will be changed into a plain from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem, but Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site from benjamin's gate as far as the place of the first gate to the corner gate and from the tower of hananel to the king king's wine presses uh, here because of there's so many uh so many uh, uh historical references and archaeological references uh, i'd like to quote richard phillips in his interpretation of these verses a lot of times when i start uh, when I start speaking about these things, you know, uh uh people think, "Wow, he just came up with that." No, this is actually something that's uh, been around a long time. A lot of a lot of other uh men of God have uh, have uh, understood these verses in this way long before me. Uh this is what Richard Phillips says. He says, "Verse 10 tells of the exaltation of Jerusalem, which is Presently situated among larger hills in an uneven country. Jerusalem's surrounding terrain is to be flattened out. This is what the verse is saying. Uh, the territory of Judah, bounded by Geba and Rimon, uh, becomes like Arabah, which is the plain through which the Jordan River flows. The hills are made level to form a plateau wall while Jerusalem is raised up to be seen by all around. And so what he's what he's doing is just describing the verse. He says, This verse gives the dimensions of the city in its greatest days. The whole city will be made secure and will rise up exalted. He says the point here is theological rather than topographical. Uh, it is the prophetic ideal achieved in the glorification of God's Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem's rise here speaks of its moral and theological glorification of the new Jerusalem, which John indeed sees coming down out of heaven to rest upon the earth. So what he's saying here is he's saying if you look at the imagery... Of, uh, of all the land being changed to a plain and the, the mountains are laid low uh, and Jerusalem is lifted up and, and sitting on a plateau and 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 all those kind of things. What, what he's doing here, what Zechariah is doing, is he's showing us the same picture that John saw when he saw the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. It'll come down of, out of heaven and it will indeed rest upon the earth. And Zechariah is showing us this uh, a picture, uh, as it were, from from uh, the ground so to speak i guess as the new jerusalem settles on its in its place and there will be that will be the city of god that will, will will be where god will dwell with his people uh verse 11 is going to bring the blessing section to a close people he says people will live in it and there will no longer be a curse uh for jerusalem will dwell in In security, So the people of God who have been redeemed in Christ will have the perfected life with God forever and ever. The eternal state in all its beauty and glory, new bodies, new creation, uh, being with their Lord forever and ever. And I'll wipe the tears from their eyes, uh, etc., etc. And so this is speaking of the eternal state. And so he brings that to a close in verse 11. uh, But now he's going to turn his attention to the judgment to come on god's enemies verses 12 through fifteen. uh these verses return to the imagery of those who have waged war against god's people and the judgment they will receive uh we've talked about blessing we've talked about the eternal state for those who are in christ now we're going to talk about judgment and the eternal state for those who have come against god and his people uh once again, now we have some options as to how we choose to interpret these verses. uh only one correct one, of course, but uh, I'm going to give them to you anyway for those for those who believe Zechariah is depicting a literal end times battle at the gates of Jerusalem uh the earthly Jerusalem, these verses are filled with ghastly supernatural judgments that uh you know one could only dream about in the vilest horror movie um however when 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 we understand these verses along with those we've previously discussed in Zechariah's apocalyptic language uh describing the eternal state as long as we is if we take those verses with these we realize that what we see here is a description of the suffering that the unconverted will experience in hell for eternity in the lake of fire for eternity and uh, of course once again we see imagery from the Old Testament we're going to see it again it's used to describe these judgments but the imagery also accords well with the New Testament depictions of hell in terms of fire and suffering and, and those things verse 12 says now this will be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouth the idea of a plague is strikingly uh you know it's it's strikingly similar to uh the the plagues of egypt you know where 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 god judged those who enslaved his people and refused to obey the command to to release them but this plague uh which will be brought on by god himself will cause the skin to rot away uh the eyes and the tongues you know uh, you don't need much imagination to see uh the torment and condemnation that is expressed here and it's it accords well with what the New Testament says, that... you know, the, the fire will never be quenched and their worm will burn forever and and, and those kind of things. Uh, verse 13 says, it will come about in that day that a great panic from the Lord will fall upon them and they will seize one another's hand and the hand of one will be lifted up against the hand of the other. Uh, verse, th- verse 13 shows us another aspect uh, that we've also seen many times in the Old Testament. God causing a panic among an enemy camp so that they begin fighting and tearing at each other we've seen that over and over again you think back to the midianites uh, doing this as they fled from gideon uh, and the foreign army before king jehoshaphat who put his choir up front to sing praises causing the other enemy to to uh, uh, fight each other being confused Uh, conceivably this verse is portraying the eternal hatred and conflict of the wicked in hell something you don't think about every day when god's restraining presence is removed and that's what men will experience in hell it will be the total removal of anything good the removal of god's presence from all his wickedness all man's wickedness and the desires of his heart burst forth and all goodness is removed uh there they're not going to be any parties there's not going to be no friends uh no compatriots in hell uh, every wicked inclination of man's heart will be released and unbound to do and to seek whatever it wills. This is one of those profound truths of eternity in, in hell. I, I was uh, often asked how I thought, you know, it's fair for God to punish souls for eternity, you know, just for a uh, a finite lifetime in, uh, of sin. You know, it's it's not fair to punish those for eternity who only sin for eighty years, so to speak. Um, but without the restraining presence of God. There's there's nothing but sin. It's the answer I always give. What makes you think people stop sinning once they're in hell? That is an assumption that almost everybody makes. That, you know, well, once you're in hell, you don't sin anymore. Uh, I don't think that's biblical at all. Uh, you go right on sinning. You go right on hating. You go right on uh, despising. You know, there is, uh, think about this for a minute. This is just me talking out loud, but. Uh there is never a picture of a person in hell who repents and says, "Oh, I'm so sorry. I wish I would have done." They they continue right along with their hatred of God, with their love of self. Uh even the man who it reminds me of the rich man and Lazarus. Even the man the, the rich man who went to hell and called out to uh to Lazarus to help him, called out to, you know, Father Abraham. He says, uh, instead of saying, God, I repent and I'm sorry. He said, give me some water. <laughs> and Abraham said, well, no, you, you can't have any water. And then instead of repenting and say, God, I'm sorry, please take me from this place. Uh, I, I surrender to you. He said. Send somebody to tell my brothers not to come here. Even then, he didn't repent. He didn't He didn't turn to God. I'm not saying, and of course, it, then it'll be too late. I'm not saying that people get a second chance in hell. But what I'm saying is that even in the eternal state, even in the eternal conscious punishment that those will receive in hell, uh, they will continue to sin against God. Uh, verse 14 says, Judah also will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations will be gathered, gold, and silver, and garments in great abundance. Uh, at Christ's return, he will cause the world and its wealth, now purged of sin, to pass forever into the custody of the saints. We can see this truth presented in the parable of the talents, when the king says, take away the one talent from the servant who sat on what he had, and uh, give it to the one who has ten talents. The Bible tells us that the meek will truly inherit the earth. And verse 15 says so also like this plague will be the plague on the horse the mule the camel the donkey and all the cattle that will be in those camps he's talking about his the camps of his enemies the plague of judgment will be inescapable for God's enemies. Uh, they'll not be able to get away. And the it will strike even their animals. Uh, and if you look at these animals, the, the horse, the mule, the camel, and the donkey, uh, those are all animals that are used for transportation and you know pack animals, those kind of things. In, in the Old Testament, everything the enemy has is, is uh, placed under the ban. That's what it's called, uh, dedicated to the Lord. Everything that is not of Christ will be destroyed. You can see that as God's people destroyed cities God says that you will put everything under the ban. You'll destroy it all. Destroy the the animals. Destroy the camp. Destroy everything. And here it say it's showing that the same thing will be true of those who suffer eternal conscious uh, torment in hell. Everything will be destroyed, and there will be no way uh, no way of escape. Uh, next, Zechariah shows us the the worship that will take place in the eternal state. I'm kind of hurrying now because we're. Uh, taking a lot of time with this. Uh, Now, as we see the worship in this eternal state, we need to admit right off the bat that these are some hard verses to interpret, regardless of what camp that you fall into. Uh, If you believe Zechariah is talking about a literal attack on physical Jerusalem, then you have to find a way to explain to me how Jesus will return only to reinstitute the law of Moses, the sacrifices and the feast, which the New Testament authors, who are almost all Jewish, mind you, uh, said were fulfilled in Christ and no longer necessary. Uh, Some people get around this by saying that the sacrifices that are offered in the eternal in the quote-unquote millennial kingdom are not to atone for sin, but to commemorate the one true sacrifice of Christ. But this still leaves us with a glaring problem, commemorating the reality by going back to the type and shadows that pointed to it Uh, It doesn't make much sense, and it cheapens the sacrifice of Christ, and I think the New Testament Jewish authors would have been appalled to think that we would go back to sacrificing goats and bulls and those kind of things when Christ has come. it also proves that the feasts and the rituals were, you know, if you believe this, it proves that the feasts and the rituals were not literally fulfilled in Jesus. He just set them aside for a time because it's going to talk about people coming up to the city to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. But if we adopt a New Testament perspective on the fulfillment of these prophecies, I don't see how we can accept that interpretation. Uh, so once again we need just need to make sure that we understand that Zechariah is using the language of his time to demonstrate the general realities of the worship of God the internal state. He is using figurative language to demonstrate literal realities. This is not just You know, uh, this is not just allegorizing the text. This is not just uh, saying it doesn't really mean what it says that it means. It means exactly what it says. Uh, But it's using, as so many of the Old Testament prophets do, in so much apocalyptic literature, that is the genre that we're we're talking about here, it's using figurative symbolic language to demonstrate literal realities. This is how the New Testament authors took it. This is how we should take it. Uh, Verse 16 says, Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations... That went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of Hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. First, we need to understand exactly what the Feast of Booths. Pointed to in the Old Testament. The feast is instituted in Leviticus twenty-three. It was an especially joyous feast that was celebrated in the harvest time of Israel. Uh, in this festival, Israel commemorated their deliverance from Egypt and, and, and God's leading through the through the wilderness. Zechariah is describing the eternal joy and worship of God who you know by using the imagery of the Old Testament of Old Testament Israel's most joyous festival. The the remnant who are left which are those who are in Christ will go up in worship uh, of God through Jesus Christ. They will worship the king of kings uh, eternally. Um, the, they will truly celebrate the harvest festival in the fullest sense of the word. They are worshiping in joy and celebration because of the harvest that has taken place as the king has harvested his people from the curse of sin and the world system. But then then there's there's verse 17 through 19. It says, and it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. Verse 18, if the family of Egypt, if the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. It will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booze. This will be punishment, the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booze. Now, think about that. Does this mean that there will be people on the earth? Uh, in the eternal state who are sinful and rebellious. Uh, if you're a dispensationalist, you'd probably say that Christ is going to only rule for a thousand years. Uh, during this time, there's going to be wicked people still on the earth, but we're going to have new bodies, uh, You know, there, but there'll still be people who sinfully refuse God's reign. Uh, so this is a problem for those people, even in their own system uh and it, it, they're hard verses to interpret so don't get me wrong and i'm going to offer you uh what i and other people have said but uh but this is these is something we have to struggle with these are something that we need to apply uh as uh, we need to make sure that we're seeing these through the fulfillment of the new testament because that's what its purpose is is to f- showing us the fulfillment of all these prophecies um let me quote Dean Davis again his his book The High King of Heaven. Uh it says Puzzlingly, we find these rebellious nations still upon the earth, yet far from Zion and Jerusalem, where the friends of God celebrate the feasts of God. But in Revelation 22, which also describes the world to come, the puzzle is solved. Here again, we find these nations far from Jerusalem, outside the gates of the holy city. Revelation 22:15. Now, however, we have learned that in fact they are in a lake of fire, and that's uh, given in Isaiah 66, Revelation 19 and 20. Uh, it is therefore in death and hell that these impenitent enemies of god will endure the very plague of drought that they have chosen for themselves in this life when they refuse to drink of the rock and to follow the rock the god uh, you know, that god had offered them in the gospel yet in the new Jerusalem there will be no more sin everything will be holy to the lord uh, there will be no more sin no curse and nothing that's defiling and so what he's saying here is that uh, When we're talking about those that are on the earth those the family of egypt those that uh, refuse to go up uh to serve the lord and to trust in the lord they will receive the drought that so many others you know makes you think about elijah uh who told uh you know three years of drought during the reign of uh uh, of king uh, king ahab and, and the end of the drought after the prophets of baal are killed uh the the Culmination of these things is going to be uh, that people will get exactly what they have they have asked for, and so finally, as we come to the last two verses, I know this is a is a very difficult chapter. Um, we're going to talk about in the fact that there's in the New Jerusalem there'll be no more sin; everything will be holy. Everything will be holy to the Lord. There'll be no more curse. There'll be nothing that is defiling anymore. Nothing that is sinful. Verse 20 and 21 says In that day there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses holy to the Lord. And the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the bowls before the altar. Every cooking pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts and all who sacrifice will come and take of them and boil in them. And there will no longer be a Canaanite, which means a defiled person in the house of the Lord of hosts in that day. So here we see that even the most common everyday things will be holy, down to the bells on the horses and the cooking pots. Uh, There will be no more Canaanites, which means no more unclean people. In Jerusalem, Revelation also tells us that there will be perfection without curse, without sin. Everybody will be holy forever and ever and ever. Now, once again, we see in verse 21, it says, And all who sacrifice will come and take of them and boil in them. Talking about the cooking pots. Now, we can't just say, well, they'll come sacrifice with praise or something like that. Because it's talking about them cooking their sacrifices and boiling pots. And so if you uh if you are saying this is uh, the literal city of Jerusalem where Jesus will uh, return and set up his kingdom uh, you you've got to explain to me how the sacrifices will once again start up after the return of Christ it it uh It defies and it it just goes against everything that the New Testament says. But when you understand that he's using this figurative language to express the realities of perfection, uh, then we can see that is using the language of his day to demonstrate to us what this eternal state in the new Jerusalem will be like. I know that this. um, Zechariah, when you start at the beginning and work your way through, it uh, it becomes increasingly more difficult to interpret. In the same way that all apocalyptic literature does, it gets more and more dense as we go through. The same way with Revelation, if you were to go through that book. I don't think it's possible to interpret Revelation without a constant... Uh, Pointing toward Old Testament uh, symbols and allusions uh, in every chapter, on every page of the Book of Revelation, uh, he is pointing toward prophecies that are given in Ezekiel and Daniel and, and Isaiah and Zechariah and Amos and and uh, Joel and and so he is just constantly pointing toward those things, Old Testament realities. And so, what we need to see here is that no matter what system you hold to, no matter what way that you interpret these verses. We all agree that uh, the the return of Christ will bring with it blessing for God's people. It will bring with it judgment for God's enemies. So the point of uh, the point of any system, the point of any interpretation, the point of whether you see these things as uh, happening over in Palestine only in that little area around Jerusalem, or if you see these things happening as uh, worldwide events and general realities that will be coming at the end of time, um, the point is the point is the same when all. Things things are culminated, and everything is said and done, and the the creation is wrapped up uh, in in its final days, Uh, only those who have trusted in Christ will receive the blessing of God, and those who have not will receive nothing but cursing, judgment, and eternal damnation.